this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. This is the silliest show. Hey there. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is September 3rd, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Are you refreshed after the long weekend? Excited that your beloved Minnesota Twins (laughs) have uh, hit enough home runs to clear the all-time record? All of the home runs. They're hitting them all. It is uh, amazing. And on the line from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. So as Neil mentioned, the Twins broke the record for home runs in a season on Saturday when Mitch Garver, of course, hit the team's 268th homer. Saturday, in case you had forgotten, was August 31st. There's still an entire month left in the season. I don't understand how I just I will never understand the season. Ever. Yeah, this came completely out of nowhere. I guess we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, but it's also symbolic that Mitch Garver hit it because he is like the 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 player that among all the home run hitters on the Twins seemed least likely to randomly have a great hitting season. And uh, there are a lot of candidates on the Twins for that, though. There are. Mitch Garver has hit 26 home runs in only 77 games. That's that's insane. That, that's yeah. like less than half a season. He hits a home run every third game he plays in. So how that's how many does he have? 20, 26. 26? So that's like more than a 52 home run season pace. Yeah. Not to pour water on your uh, achievement. And when I say you, I mean the twins. You don't have to. You cannot. This doesn't seem like a record that's going to last very long. Okay, sure. But they're they're on pace to hit well over 300. I mean, they're going to they're going to beat the the Yankees last year's record <laughs> the by, record from last year yeah I know it was a long-standing record by about you know 11 months <laughs> but they're gonna they're gonna beat that by many many home runs I mean probably they were on pace at one point for 317 um and, and, and also like it's a lot you know teams are hitting 1.4 home runs per game this year and there's been a lot of talk about like is it the ball mm-hmm. it's probably the ball it might be the ball it might be the ball <laughs> you never know but last year teams only hit 1.15 home runs per team per game and that was down from the previous year so there's no guarantee that teams are going to hit that it's going to go upward next year from 1.4 per team per game to like 1.5 which would be unbelievable it seems more likely that it will go down and kind of regress back to the already let's be honest ridiculously high rates of 2017 and 2018 yeah and also so maybe they do fix whatever's going on with the ball in the offseason. Do they really want that? Then the record lives forever. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. For the twins, you know. That's fine. That's a good thing. Yeah. (laughs) That'll be, I mean, we'll obviously hear a lot more about the ball um, once the findings of the committee that's been studying it are, are out. But for the moment, I'm going to bask in the in the glow of this home run record by the least likely team to ever hit these. If we were to list them one through 30, (laughs) At the beginning of the season, on teams most likely to break last year's Yankee home run record, uh-huh. I don't know. What do you think they would have been? Like 20? 16? I mean, they, they would 20. not have been discussed as a contender. No. 
Not even, not even I, close. Yeah, I think they were like eighth to last in home runs last year, and they only had 166. And now, are are they on pace to like almost have twice that this year? Yeah, like that's yeah. I don't know. There aren't any words to describe that. I know. It's 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 unbelievable. And they don't even have Joe Mauer in his Stop. six or seven. Listen, <laughs> you do not. Mm, I love taking Joe Mauer you shots. You keep his name out it's of your mouth. my favorite thing. <laughs> also this weekend in sports, the U.S. Open, we're finally uh, getting down to business there. Uh, both number one seeds are out. Naomi Osaka lost in straight sets to number 13, Belinda Bencic of Switzerland. On the men's side, my guy, Novak Djokovic, retired with a shoulder injury in the fourth round against Stan Wawrinka. It was really a bummer. Wawrinka was up a break in the third set after winning the first two. In another data point that fans are the actual worst, some in the crowd in Flushing were booing Djokovic as he walked off the court with a shoulder injury. Is he even a millennial? He's a millennial. Wait. He's a friend. And if we didn't think that he was before, we can consult Doug Gottlieb's tweet. <laughs> oh, and because realize. he quit. Oh, okay. Right, yeah. I was like, what does that have to do with people booing him? Are people more likely to boo millennials? Just Doug, Doug Gottlieb. They're booing millennials who withdraw <laughs> from playing sports before they see fit for them to withdraw. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. I'm, I'm there with you now. But seriously, what what is wrong with people? Why would you boo someone who it's not like this was like a phantom shoulder injury that just cropped up because he was losing. He's had he's been fighting this the whole tournament. So so I just come on. I know everyone wants to see good tennis, but jeez. I think most most of those fans thought it was a phantom shoulder injury that cropped up while he was losing. If you're watching and a guy's down two sets and he's down a break in the third and then he gets injured, I mean, you're in Queens. They're serving alcohol. <laughs> they're obviously going to think maybe that's a fake injury. They're not going to be like, well, he has a history of shoulder injuries, you know, like. Uh, it seems like a fake injury, but that's why they're booing. That's all. I, mean, I don't. I don't know why I'm defending them, but you know they paid a lot of money to go there. They're paying eleven dollars for for lemonade. They're paying a lot more than that. <laughs> I've had that lemonade, and it's more than eleven dollars. <laughs> it's more than eleven dollars. It's really expensive. <laughs> that's not possible. There was a really nice moment on the women's side on Saturday after Osaka beat 15 year old phenom Coco Goff. Osaka invited Goff to share her post game interview on the court, and they each complimented the other. Osaka was um, very said very nice things about Goff's parents. They they train in the same um, at the same complex in Florida, so it was really it was just all around lovely. I'm not gonna lie, I, I teared up a little bit. It was really nice. Wow, people being nice, it's really touching. <laughs> people yeah. being good sports. Kevin Durant said something nice about Curry's uh, parents before, uh, after the 2017 um, Western Conference Finals. Probably, <laughs> probably. <laughs> the big names are still in contention. Serena Williams, Roger Federer, and Rafa Nadal are still looking to win it all. So are we going to get the Nadal-Federer final, That the long-awaited meeting in, in the U.S. Open? I mean, now it's finally, the path's been cleared, right? Seems like the most likely outcome at the moment, so... Here's hoping. By the way, rule thing I wasn't totally 100% on. The highlights from the last match, Nadal over Selic confirmed it. Did you see the shot where he was so far past the doubles lane yes. that he hit a winner and it didn't go over the net? Yeah, I thought it had to go over the net. It was like, wait a second here. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't have to go over the net the in whole tennis? Point of this tennis? is making me rethink tennis. Yeah, I thought the whole one of the core foundational premises of <laughs> tennis is you hit the ball over the net. 
But I guess it just had it never come up because no one had like dared hit that shot and actually like get it in. Yeah, it's got to be a pretty small share of shots. Is that, that the first time anyone has ever it. done that? Like that's the first time I've ever seen I, that. It's the first time I've seen it. I'm sure he's probably done it himself. Should they extend the nets all the way past the doubles lane? Oh, I think it should be like almost to the crowd. Don't they say? Well, I think they should spiritually um, extend them like in the NFL where that old John Madden line about like the plane of the goal line extends around the whole planet. You remember that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to break the plane. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so on today's show, we'll discuss our model for the upcoming NFL season. We'll be joined by Kent Blackstone, shortstop for the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs, to take a look at the effects of new technology in baseball. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The first game of the 2019 NFL season is this Thursday, with the Green Bay Packers traveling to Chicago to take on the Bears. Prediction fever is in the air. Here's Peter Schrager on the NFL Network's Good Morning Football, offering his hot take on the next Super Bowl champ. I'm very, very bullish on the Vikings. I really like Minnesota. Quietly a team nobody's really talking about for Super Bowl contention. I think they are my favorite in the NFC North. The Vikings right now are ascending when I feel like no one's talking about them. To dive into this take and some of the expectations swirling around the league this year, we're going to use one of our favorite segments. Everybody ready? This This is Model Talk. Model Talk. (laughs) Jeff didn't even try. I remembered to say it that time. I got it. Rewind the tape and listen carefully. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The 538 NFL model doesn't come out until tomorrow morning, but we figured we'd give a preview to our hot takedown listeners. Neil, why don't you start us off? Does our model love the Vikings as much as Schrager does? Uh, it sounds like not quite as much. <laughs> we're, we're not necessarily bullish on them to win the Super Bowl. We we give them a 3% chance, which sounds really low, but that's uh, basically tied with you know the Seattle Seahawks, the Atlanta Falcons, the Baltimore Ravens. It's like one percentage point behind the Dallas Cowboys. So that basically ranks them around maybe like the tenth best team in the league. Doesn't seem low enough to me, frankly. Oh. It should be. Lower. Oh, you think it should be lower? Yeah, yeah. But wait, won't miserable. we get to a point in the season where you're all in no. on the Vikings? <laughs> not this year. <laughs> not not as long as they have Cousins at quarterback. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> so who does their model see as the favorite this year? Um, this is going to surprise you guys. I know, but we have. The New England Patriots Whoa. favored to win the Super Bowl. Really? I know we Going out on a seen there. that before. Uh, we give Tom Brady and friends the uh, a fourteen percent chance of winning the Super Bowl, and then right behind them, the Kansas City Chiefs have an eight percent chance. The Eagles also have an eight percent chance. The New Orleans Saints have a seven percent chance. So Neil, there's one big change in this year's model, along with a couple of smaller tweaks. Do you want to talk through those? Yeah. So the big thing that we added was a quarterback adjustment. So in the past, we just sort of assumed that we could figure out if there was a change to a team's underlying quality uh, just by looking at their recent games and saying, okay, well, if this team has suddenly started playing a lot worse, they're probably a lot worse, but we didn't try to kind of figure out, well, is it a personnel thing? And specifically, is it because they've lost a really important player? And so we decided to make it a priority this summer to put in ratings for every quarterback so that we can kind of modify a team's chances of winning when 
say Aaron Rodgers goes down in the middle of the season, the Packers would not still be favored to win their next game and, and take a few games of uh, Brett Hundley uh, starting for them for Elo to start figuring out like, hmm, I think something's wrong with the Packers. Instead, <laughs> we can kind of instantaneously uh, make a change to the prediction. So that was the big one. And when we were back testing it, it significantly improved the the prediction model. Uh, but we also added a few other wrinkles. So this year, instead of using last year's end of season rating uh, and kind of regressing it to the mean and using that as the starting rating for every team at the start of 2019, instead we are mixing that with Vegas over-unders, which we turned into uh, an ELO scale and then gave two-thirds weight and then gave one-third weight to the regressed ELO for the previous year. We also added travel distance and rest. So now if a team has to travel a significant way uh, to play, they will be sort of extra dinged uh, in their prediction for that. If a team's coming off a bye week, they'll get a bonus. Uh, And finally, we added a factor for the playoffs because we found that favorites in the playoffs tend to win more often and by wider margins than would be predicted from just, you know, their base ELO, which is mostly based on the regular season. So do we know um, how much of an adjustment was made to the Colts uh, going from Luck to Brissett? Because I yes. see them down here at 7-9, and nine, which sounds about right, but I'm just curious what they were before. Yeah, so they were 9-7, and seven, and they were the favorites to win the AFC South before Andrew Luck retired, which we talked about last week. And they dropped 90 ELO points with Jacoby Brissett. Uh, and so now they are projected to be in last in that division rather than first. So that one change, which is something that we wouldn't have been able to account for going into the season, has ended up you know, completely flipping a division. Now, I should say we ran these predictions before a lot of the trades over the weekend. So, for instance, uh, Jadavion Clowney being traded from Houston is not reflected. So we have Houston as the favorites right now. But by Wednesday morning, uh, when the model rolls out, we'll have rerun that. Maybe that'll change it. Maybe it'll boost Seattle. One thing we do know is that Indianapolis is uh, not going to be favored to win that division. Yeah. So, Jeff, what surprises you most about the model this year? To be honest, I think it's actually how low it is on the Browns. I'll be honest, I'm actually not as high on Cleveland. I think Cleveland obviously has a huge amount of talent. I think they still are probably like a year away, but considering at least what the public thinks of them, you look at their Super Bowl odds, they're 18-1. to They actually have better Super Bowl odds than the Vikings um, or the Packers or the Cowboys, which to me doesn't make a ton of sense. They're probably the one where we're most off from the general public consensus. No, I think that's right. Um, Although it's funny because we kind of wrote a story about this maybe a month ago about how the Browns were kind of picking up all this momentum and they were the hot team. You know, the Baker Mayfield has been on like the cover of magazines. They got Odell Beckham. It seems like there's a lot of narrative around this team. And I think a lot of it has to do with also the fact that these are the Browns. You know, it's like you don't you don't get a chance every year to hype up the Browns as a as a real legitimate um, contending team. There's also the narrative that the Steelers are sort of, you know, on the downside after losing Antonio Brown. Le'Veon Bell didn't play for them last year, but now he's officially gone. And so I think a lot of things are kind of building this narrative. But when we looked at 
just the implied ratings of these teams before we even ran ELO based on Vegas, the Browns were only the 17th best team. If you look at Pro Football Focus's talent grades for each team, the Browns were only the 18th best team in the league. So I think some of the more sort of sober, cold-eyed <laughs> looks at, at the Browns that, that aren't getting caught up in the hype would assess them as sort of more of an average team that might be on the rise and has, you know, more potential than it's had in a long time, but maybe not getting quite so swept up in Brown's Super Bowl mania. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I think the two North divisions are the definitely the most competitive. I mean, obviously the Bengals are not that good, but the Ravens, you know, were a playoff team and are an interesting team with Lamar Jackson and, you know, the Steelers, like you said, and then, you know, going to Minnesota. I mean, Green Bay should be better, Chicago you know, even Detroit is going to be competitive. So I think those two divisions are probably what's at play. Whereas you look at the AFC South and it's just like a wasteland. Regards to the Browns, I mean, I, I don't think they're, I think they're going to be a playoff team, but I, I, Super Bowl seems like a stretch. They're definitely the team I'm most interested in watching week one because I just want to see, you know, sort of what that all looks like with Odell. Yeah, and we give them a 40% chance of making the playoffs. So they would be, I think, the third most likely team that didn't make the playoffs last year to join that. You know, there's that stat about, what is it, Jeff, like? Half the teams that make the playoffs one year don't the next year or something like that? Yeah, it's it's usually about six. I think two years ago it was eight, so it can go even higher. But generally it's about half of them. And it, it's always hard to process because if you look at you know a blank slate, you're naturally going to think that the usual suspects will be back there again. So it, it's interesting trying to detect like which are the teams that are going to – I mean you have to find six of them um, from a year ago. Like, will Chicago be as good, you know? Will Chargers be as good? I mean, they still have pretty high odds, but, you know, their running back hasn't signed yet. Um, if, if that's a factor, that's certainly not a great thing. You know, will the Ravens be able to do it again with Lamar Jackson and, and what they're trying to do? Will the Vikings fall just short of the playoffs? Yes, probably. Well, we have if the Vikings. History is any guide. Yeah, and like, like I said, you know, if the Browns are third on the most likely non-playoff teams to make it back, the number one is Pittsburgh. I think that's kind of an easy one to to call, and then number two is Minnesota. And again, that one not too hard to comprehend, you know. And then in terms of teams most likely to fall out of the playoffs, Indianapolis seems like a no-brainer right. at this point. And then. You know, Houston, after that clowny move, they, we even before that, we already had them as the second most likely playoff team from last year to not make the playoffs. We only gave them a 41% chance, even though they were the favorite to win that division, which kind of tells you about how jammed up everything was in that division, at least among the, the non-Colts teams. And so now, you know, divesting themselves of a... Uh, a top pass rusher. And I know they got things in return from uh, from Miami in that accompanying trade. They gave up a lot of draft picks for it. But, you know, they're another team that's, I think, Jacksonville is on people's radar as a team to move up because they now have Nick Foles and not Blake Bortles uh, at long last. And so, you know, maybe that's how that division shakes up. If if you see Houston dropping out, that's how it happens. So our NBA model has successfully predicted outcomes in the past. Neil, how has our NFL model historically performed? Well, you know, it's a little bit tough to say in terms of just looking at, like, does the favorite win? Because, like, our preseason favorite won last year, but 
that was the Patriots. And I feel like you could just blindly pick the Patriots every year for yeah. like the last two decades and have a pretty good success rate. You know, the eventual Super Bowl winner is generally has been generally near the top of our rankings. And I should say this is under the old like non quarterback adjusted non bells and whistles method. Um, the only big exception since we've been predicting this was 2017. We had the Eagles ranked 15th before the year. Um, but, uh, I would say our previous predictions were competent. Uh, the root mean squared error between our win predictions and actual team wins last year was 2.7. That is okay. You know, it's it's better than uh, just something that takes last year's record, regresses it to the mean, which is what um, ESPN's Brian Burke did once upon a time in a famous old blog post about how preseason predictions are worthless. He called it Coco the Monkey, which was just take last year, cut the wins in half, add six to it, and then that's like your prediction for next year. And if a prediction system can't beat that, then it's probably not worth that much. And you would be surprised that some of these sort of you know purportedly advanced um, systems were not able to out predict Coco. I can say that Elo outpredicted Coco last year, um, but not by much. It's it's not a huge accomplishment to outpredict Coco. But I think one of Brian's main points in doing all of that um, back then also was to show that predicting the NFL is really hard and you can the best you can kind of hope for is marginal improvements. And based on the back testing that we did on this quarterback adjustment, we're feeling better about them. I'm not saying that they're, you know, necessarily gonna beat Vegas still, but one of the big ways in which you know, we had this prediction contest where you would set these sliders for each game and you would uh, set the odds of one team beating the other. And one of the benchmarks that you were testing yourself against was ELO. And so I played that uh, the first year that we did it and did really well. But my only secret was just look at the Vegas line and convert that to an implied probability and then shade, you know, ELO's prediction in the direction of, you know, when there's a huge difference in the direction of Vegas. And one of the big ways or cases in which it was different most of the time was when a quarterback was hurt. That was the year Aaron Rodgers went down in the middle of the season. Mm -hmm. So betting against the Packers was really productive uh, as a strategy. And so that hopefully will be gone now, that that way in which ELO is sort of not... um, as good as Vegas. That technique, not me betting against the Packers, because that will Well, you forever. will always yeah, do yeah. that, even though you're also down in the Vi- Vikings. I guess you're just really just, high on the Bears. No. <laughs> Mitch yeah, Trubisky just, for yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Looking at the last couple seasons of the model, the three quarterback injuries that were, I think, the impetus for this adjustment, obviously, as you mentioned, the Rodgers injury, but also Deshaun Watson getting hurt his rookie year. But the third one was actually that Eagle year where the model, you know, sort of caught up to the Eagles and was predicting the Eagles, I think, to win playoff games when the public kept seeing Nick Foles and they kept, you know, that's it's where the line, the Vegas lines in the model did not agree, but actually the model turned out to be right, uh, whether that was, you know, serendipitous or not. The model, like us, doesn't really know how good Nick Foles is. I think that was definitely a case of being right for the wrong reason, though, right? (laughs) Like, you know, um, especially since Foles looked really bad down the stretch of that regular season and then just suddenly 
turned it on in the playoffs, our quarterback rating would have considered Foles a below average quarterback going into each of those playoff games. Only after his ridiculous performance against the Patriots in that Super Bowl would it have considered him an above average quarterback. Um, by comparison, Carson Wentz, when he went down, was considered significantly above average. Um, so that would have been a case in which actually the model would have been worse for adding the quarterback adjustment. But, you know, I think on balance, uh, it will be a lot better for it. Cool. That's awesome. It should be interesting to see how, how it does over the season and whether, yeah, whether those elements, those new elements make a big difference. Let's take a kind of a step back a little bit and think about the league as a whole. Jeff, what storylines are you watching heading into the season? The NFL is sort of stagnant in the sense that we have so many of the usual suspects. You know, we have Tom Brady, we have Ben Roethlisberger, Philip Rivers, um, all these Aaron Rodgers. I'm interested in this sort of the emerging powers in, in, in both um, conferences, in the Rams and the Chiefs. I want to see if those teams can build off that. You know, like, well, the, people have obviously put, put a lot of praise on Sean McVay. I'm curious to see if the le- rest of the league is going to look at that tape of that Super Bowl and, and, and sort of look at what teams did to slow that offense in the second half of the year and build on that or whether McVay continues to evolve. And likewise, you know, does Mahomes and, and that offense and Andy Reid take a step back or they take a step forward into something else, which would be something dominant or even more so dominant? And as I said earlier, I think the Browns and a lot of these emerging powers are, are interesting to see which ones have staying power and which ones might have been sort of one-year flashes in the pan. Personally, I think the Bears fit the category of one-year flashes in the pan pretty well. They lost their defensive coordinator and the architect of that defense. He's in Denver. I'm not a big Trubisky believer. Are there big Trubisky believers? Is that a thing? I think even the most diehard Bears fans think that he's the weakest part of that roster when you, when you look at the whole thing all together, which is not really what you want. The quarterback being the weakest part of that roster. But teams have obviously succeeded. <laughs> the Bears have succeeded. In fact, the Bears have a long tradition of that. So, yeah. <laughs> Kyle Orton and Jim Miller send their regards. Oh, Jim McMahon. Yeah. Uh, well, Jim McMahon was actually not that bad. <laughs> people <laughs> For people that one on season. Him. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I, to echo what you were saying about teams regressing to the mean, I think one of the ways in which a model like this is valuable is that it can sort of build in that how much a team that has an outlier season can expect to give back the following season. So for instance, you know, last year, the Rams had a point differential of plus 143. Uh, This year, Elo only thinks that they'll have a plus 59 uh, point differential. And the same could be said with Kansas City, they were plus 144 last year. And now we think they'll only be plus 75. So you know, unless you're the Patriots, all these things that, you know, went up last year must come down at least some. Uh, and that's why um, models like ours really don't predict that many teams to even win double digit games because, that you know, we know happen. some teams will win, not just 10 games, but 12, 13, 14 sometimes even. But it's almost impossible to say which ones will do it. Except the Patriots, we we predict them to have an eleven and five record, and that's like our uber conservative pick for them. Right. <laughs> well, I'm sure we will continue to talk about the NFL a lot during the season. Um, we're excited to get going with the season on Thursday, and please look for our model tomorrow. Before we move on, let's have a word from this week's sponsor, ButcherBox. 
Neil and Jeff, did either of you enjoy a barbecue over Labor Day weekend? Sadly, I didn't. <laughs> did you, Jeff? I did. Did you use a butcher box? I was not the one providing the food. It was not my, I was not hosting. Did you have a hot dog eating contest, Jeff? I did not have a hot dog eating contest. It's not July 4th, Neil. It's (laughs) Labor Day. There's no hot dog eating contest on Labor Day. If you had the fortune of enjoying a relaxing barbecue weekend and you're not yet using ButcherBox, you're missing out. Every month, ButcherBox delivers humanely raised 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon directly to your door. You can choose from four curated boxes or customize your own box with all of your favorite cuts. And with free shipping, ButcherBox makes getting high-quality meat with no added hormones or antibiotics easier than ever. This month, ButcherBox is offering new members $20 off your first box plus free ground beef for the life of your subscription when you sign up at ButcherBox.com takedown. That's right. In addition to all the great meat you get, ButcherBox is knocking $20 off your first box and throwing in two pounds of free ground beef in every box for the life of your subscription when you sign up at ButcherBox.com slash takedown. That's ButcherBox.com slash takedown. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by Kent Blackstone, shortstop for the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs of the Atlantic League. The league is currently serving as a proving ground for new and experimental innovations in baseball. Kent, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here, guys. So, Kent, one of the biggest changes the Atlantic League has seen this year is the introduction of an automatic strike zone. Can you explain to us what exactly that looks like? Uh, I'll just I'll just start off by saying, like, the, the Atlantic League is the premier independent league to be in. I mean, every team is loaded with guys who have a significant major league or affiliated time. So... When they decided to sign the contract with Major League Baseball to test out the TrackMan system and implementing other new rule changes in the Atlantic League, like that was something for me I was really excited about. We just implemented it in uh, the second half of the season. And uh, personally, I think it's, it's, it has the potential to be the future of baseball. And, uh, I mean, the main goal is just to have the strike zone be more consistent uh, across the game. I mean, what we've seen so far is is as the corners are concerned, inside and out, uh, it's been, like, pinpoint accurate. We've had some inefficiencies uh, up and down we're trying to work through. Yeah. Well, I heard um, with regard to the up and down inconsistency that kind of a funny thing happened to you specifically, right, with regard to the height of your strike zone? Yeah, that was... <laughs> since I'm, I, I have no affiliated ball experience, um, my... There was no data in the minor league system on me. And so they took my listed height from the roster in Southern Maryland. And uh, obviously, I gave myself an inch or two. As one does. Yeah, not thinking anything of it. And uh, yeah, that, that kind of backfires. There was a series actually here in High Point where I, I have it on video. I mean, there, there are balls that are being called to my shoulders. And for me, for me, that's something that, like, if they're going to get that call, I'm, I'm in big trouble. Yeah. And so, so uh, we, we, were, we were able to work it out. We changed, changed my height, and, and since then it's been, it's been great. There have been a lot of hangouts with guys on the up and down, but, I mean, that, that just comes with testing something in general. And uh, so, some guys here do feel like, like kind of guinea pigs in that aspect. Because, I mean, 
like I mentioned, a lot of guys have major league affiliated time. They're trying to they're trying to go over overseas or get back into affiliated ball. I mean, for me personally, I'm 25. I'd like to like to make my way back, might make my way into affiliated ball. So these numbers matter for us. Mm. Uh, so it's it's not it's not something that like I would like to to wear uh, extra strikeouts mm. because they're trying to test something. But but on the flip side, I perceive this as some very groundbreaking stuff uh, that Major League Baseball is looking at and wants and could potentially implement in the major leagues. I, I do see the trackman or automated strike zones being part of the game three to five years from now. So now that your height has been sorted out, do you feel like that automated strike zone is is helping you? Is it helping your game? The, the one thing that, that I really like about it is the corners, the corner aspect. Because in this league, uh, and especially with, with like veteran pitchers, I mean, guys guys like uh, like a Matt Latos for instance who's who's our closer who's been in the big leagues for 10 years uh umpires are going to give him a little extra on the corners and just just because of of who he is and and so now like across the board that 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 has to be consistent but but we still are seeing missed calls um and but but that's something that I I see the league working through and being able to track how many times the umpire agrees, the hitter agrees, and the catcher agrees that that was a ball, like a perceived ball from from our end, and being able to track how many times that we've that we encounter that throughout a game, and then and then being able to identify the areas and being and and just being able to try and fix that because if we want it to be ready for major league baseball, those growing pains have to happen somewhere. That's a really interesting point that you made about um, kind of getting that agreement from not just TrackMan, but also the kind of, you know, the humans watching it. I know people always talk about, like, the risk of removing the human element from the game. Is that something that you guys think about? I've seen research at the major league level where, you know, with two strikes, sometimes the uh, umpires will kind of subconsciously shrink the strike zone, or with three balls, they'll sort of widen it. Is that something that it makes you feel better that some of those biases are going away, even like the the Matt Latos, like, you know, reputation type strikes or whatever? Is, is it, Does it make for a more fair game? Yeah, I mean, uh, baseball purists are always going to no, they're going to want to keep the game the exact same forever. You know, <laughs> uh, there, there's always going to be those guys on that spectrum. Um, from for me, I, I I try to be in the middle in the middle ground because, I mean, with anything, you have to move the game forward, and we have so much technology now that it's it's kind of hard to not use it. But we actually we actually saw it in in a game a couple days ago where uh, we were losing ten to one, and the strike zone remained the same. So like so so from that aspect that that's a that's a big plus because sometimes like latent games especially when it's like a blowout uh, umpires sometimes will just you know they they have a little feel for the game and they don't want to drag the game out for forever so they'll they have dinner plans you know <laughs> yeah yeah exactly they'll they'll expand the the, the strike zone um, but at, but those those at bat still matter. To every single at bat matters. You mentioned early on the other other rule changes in the Atlantic League that make some guys kind of feel like guinea pigs. Um, so those and some of those are fascinating, like stealing first. How 
How does that happen? Has that happened much? Have you seen that much? It actually first happens on our team. Tony Thomas was was the first guy in professional baseball league history to steal first base. And so uh, so basically the stealing of first base has been to combat or at least keep the catcher in the game because because implementing an automatic strike zone takes a takes a huge craft takes takes a huge part of the catcher's craft away. Oh yeah, sure. Because, no framing that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. So that they're basically trying trying to not let catchers get lazy. And so if if a pass ball occurs, you, you can just you can run. You can try and take first. Uh, and and we've seen it we've seen it a couple times. Uh, def- it's definitely a new thing for for everybody. I mean, and and as as a hitter, it's kind of like, yeah. I mean, you you. It's not your first instinct when you're you're leading off an inning and the ball goes to the backstop. You're like, oh, I can run. <laughs> <laughs> Have you tried it yet? I I haven't. I I, I honestly. I mean, just just to. Uh, I mean, for for what I want to get into. Uh, af- I mean, after baseball. I mean, I'd like to get into baseball operations and be able to say that I, I was a part of all the, these new rule changes and I, I like stole first base. I did all this, <laughs> all this other stuff. Um, you tried all the options. So, so I, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, so I, so I plan on doing it if, if the opportunity presents itself over the next 20 games. I guess you just treat it like it's almost like it's a drop third strike, but like on every potential pitch, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we, we actually had a, we had a very big, uh, we had three people thrown out the other night uh, because we had, so the the situation was first and second, top of the ninth, we're tied four to four. Um, our our setup setup guy James Dykstra, O uh, two count strikes out a guy, curveball in the dirt. The umpire call umpire like signals him out. We call time, and but we never we never threw the ball to first base. We never co- recorded the out. And so they end up over they end up overturning it, and he's safe at first base. <laughs> so you can imagine how you can imagine how like upset people were because <laughs> we were like, what what's going on? Like that's a strikeout in any in any league and any, any book. Like um, and, and and so that so it's it, those little things are still. Still very new. I feel like all the time spent arguing about those kind of new things would negate the time that you get back from like no mound visits or cutting <laughs> oh, down yeah. on the relievers. <laughs> yeah, so so, th- so those two rule changes, I I, I think are great. Oh I really? No mound. Yeah, I mean no mound visits unless you're removing the pitcher. I mean that that really. And I've talked to our pitching coach Daryl Thompson, who, I mean he's he's played 15 years of professional baseball he's made it to the big leagues um and I'm, i've been fortunate to room with him on the on the road and just pick his brain uh and and we've talked about that and he thinks that that's great because it forces pitchers to like get themselves out of things and not rely on someone else to come out and talk to them when things are going bad it would uh, eliminate the possibility for a scene like in Bull Durham, where <laughs> everyone goes to the mound to talk about wedding presents. <laughs> you got to preserve that, right? <laughs> Only on pitching changes, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we'll still have pitching changes to be able to do that. But uh, also, pitchers having to be able to face three batters at a time. Yeah, I mean, for for, for guys 
left-handed hitters like myself, I would love that. So <laughs> they don't bring the lefty in in the eighth inning to, <laughs> to right. throw off. That's a batter-friendly like rule. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the other interesting side that I see with, with like being able to look at these rule changes and kind of kind of get a glimpse of what the commissioner and MLB are trying to to progress towards. And and what I kind of see, I mean, which which you can infer from all this is is they're trying to make the game more more exciting and more and more action and more offense. Great. Well, thank you so much, Kent. This was a uh, very fun to talk to you, and I, I makes me want to go see an Atlanta game. Check out all the new fun rules. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, any anytime you guys you guys come to Maryland, <laughs> we'll we'll take care of you. We'll look you up. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank we you, really Kent. appreciate it. All right, guys. Have a good one. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Many of the data descents we've talked about on this show didn't lead to a story, but this week's rabbit hole turned into a project that I'm so proud of. So for our hot takedown rabbit hole of the week, I want to talk about the very cool interactive we published Friday on college fight songs. So I first had this idea last summer. It's been in the works for more than a year. Uh, We were brainstorming ideas for previews of the college football season. And I was back in Iowa and heard the fight song of my alma mater, Iowa State. Don't know if you know that I went to Iowa State. We're aware. (laughs) I only bring it up literally every episode. But I got to thinking about how absolutely ridiculous the lyrics to the Iowa State fight song are. It talks about, so there's a line that says, we will fight, fight, fight. We will fight with might, and we will fight the battle through. So my question was, was there some doubt at some point that the team would keep going, keep fighting, and keep playing till the end? Did they need to be told, like, guys, don't quit. You keep only, going. You, you can, can do only it. summon might for a small period of time normally. So they needed right. to be exhorted okay. yeah, to like, use it the whole game. Right. The fans were like, no, 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 keep going. Like every couple of plays <laughs> so, someone was like are we sure we've made it clear enough that we're planning on fighting <laughs> right. let's throw a few more exactly in. so I, I was interested to see if that was a theme of other fight songs and in fact it is a theme of a lot of fight songs teams are told to march down the field again that seems self-evident in football hit them hard hit that line that's like a fun phrase from the early early 20th century football. So I wanted to dig into these lyrics and see just what is in a fight song. So to do that, I looked at school websites and student handbooks and yearbooks to find the official lyrics to fight songs from the 64 teams in the Power Five conference at Plus Notre Dame. Did you like travel to the libraries on campus of each of these schools to get the (sighs) old yearbooks? It felt like it, but no, (laughs) thankfully there are PDFs out there, out there on the internet. She was scrolling through microfiche. Yeah, it did really feel like I might need to for some of these schools. Um, So I didn't use the official song for every school. There are plenty of schools that have their unofficial fight songs are actually the better known one. Like Rocky Top is obviously the song from Tennessee that that everyone knows, but it's not the official fight song. They have a much more traditional like march down the field kind of fight song. But that that's not the one that people think of. 
So some of that was kind of a judgment call. Some schools have more than one fight song. Some schools are sort of wishy-washy about which which one is the one that people think of. So some of this, um, those were judgments I made. But So I found all of those lyrics and tried to find the authors of all of those songs. It was a little bit tricky. There were some that we ended up um, that are just unknown that didn't that don't have a published author. The years were also um, very difficult to find for some of the the oldest of the schools. But so when we got all those down, we analyzed what's in them. Fight songs have a lot of common elements. A lot of them say fight, obviously, though not all of them, including one uh, one famous song, Jeff, does not mention the word fight. One famous song does not have any of the cliches we've tracked. Talking about the victors. Other common elements among fight songs, saying victory or win, naming the school's colors, spelling something out. And my personal favorite for its pettiness is naming an opponent. That is, uh, that's hilarious. I love it when teams are like, screw you, Texas, which is actually sort of a theme of some other Texas schools. Yeah. Uh, uh, my alma mater, Georgia Tech, we say to hell with Georgia. Yeah. In important. Our, yeah. yeah. What's but- the good word? <laughs> to hell with Georgia. How about them dogs? Piss on them. <laughs> that's really more of a chant. Not a uh, sure. Not not part of the fight song. Georgia Tech's fight song has its own colorful. There's a lot elements. of tropes. If if Jeff's is the uh, least tropey, ours is one of the most, although not the most. I think the most is Rutgers. That's right. Rutgers had eight of the nine categories we looked at. Yeah, <laughs> take that. <laughs> it's really, yeah. Scarlet Knights. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, fight songs are also often kind of brutal. Alabama's says to drown them, and in fact says, <laughs> send the Yellow Jackets to a watery grave. Yeah. Which is just sort of, I mean, it's kind of over the brutal, top, guys. Brutal imagery. Yeah. Well, in their defense, they're going with the whole tide metaphor here. Watery grave, drown them. Here, you know, the tide. Tide's coming in. It, it sort of, it works. I mean, I mean I, we're not even arrived. We're not even in the same conference. Yeah. I think we may have been. Yeah, were they? They must have we been. We were right? in the SEC at some point. Yeah. And then we were independent. That song was written ACC. in 1926 and referenced the 1925 season in which Alabama won its first national title. So a few of our notable findings, the greatest number of the word fight in one song was Texas with 17. They really, really want to be told to fight. The most cliches, as uh, as Neil just said, is Rutgers. They had eight out of our nine cliche categories. Oh, wait. Isn't the Texas fight song, uh, just to circle back to that for a second, isn't it called Texas fight? It is, yeah. Like the title. Yeah. You should get extra points for having the word fight Although, in the title. To be fair, a lot of them have. A lot of them are just like, well, Iowa State says Iowa, State's, Iowa State fights. So fight song being shortened to fights is pretty common. It's like a descriptor of what yeah. they do. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, these songs are all pretty dated. They're the average year this um each song was written was nineteen twenty seven. So you have a lot of old timey references and the way we talk about a lot of them are I should also say most of them are specific to football. Some have been changed over the years to be a little bit more inclusive, but of other sports and also other genders. A lot of them mention men. Um, a lot of them mention men. Well, a lot, yeah. A lot of them mention men, and a lot of them refer to the school as a she, like fighting for her or whatever. Um, so that's fun. I, you know, when Iowa State does, and I've been singing that for years and had never thought about it until this project, which I found very interesting. 
Some of those years, though, as I said before, are pretty squishy. And some of them we don't know at all. Colorado's, for example. Uh, we don't have any idea when that song was written. <laughs> it was written by someone sort of obscure. And, and the, the, the year is lost to history. The oldest song in our list is Virginia's The Good Old Song, which is also not its official fight song, but but is treated as the fight the de facto fight song. It was said to have been written by a group of students at a game in 1893. <laughs> I like the idea of students spontaneously writing a fight song at a game. I really love that. It's sung to the tune of Alding Zine, so it's a little bit easier to spontaneously I was come up say, with words. Writing it yeah. is maybe not the most accurate. Right, right, right. One thing interesting that I found, Wikipedia says that the oldest fight song is Boston College. But they got the year that the author of the Boston College Fight Song graduated from college confused for the year that he actually wrote it, which is likely somewhere between 1913 and 1917, according to research by a Boston College professor. So once again, please disregard Wikipedia when you're doing fact checking. You guys both helped on this project. What was your favorite fight song? Well, I mean, I've always thought On Wisconsin was a good one. I don't know. It feels very fight songy. So I'd say that's my favorite fight song, aside from Ramblin' Wreck, of course. I can't be biased. I can't pick my own. Right. That's a good point. Oh, so you can't pick your own, (laughs) Jeff. (laughs) What's your favorite fight song? My favorite non-Michigan fight song is probably USC's. I think theirs is pretty catchy. It's kind of built to be played over and over ad nauseum to the point where it uh, invokes nightmares in the uh, <laughs> opponent because if you've been losing to them a lot and you hear that over and over i think it would it, it's maddening um I, that's the way like when i hear the ohio state one it just kind of gives me chills brings back so many <laughs> bad memories which is really the purpose of a fight song if you think about it ohio states is the one that's been stuck in my head most over the past week i'm not really sure why um except we were checking something in the song so i listened to it a bunch of times and so now it's kind of stuck there i think my favorite is michigan's i hate to say it um but wow i know i really like it breaking some news here there is a great version of the michigan fight song that well every year i think the musical theater students at michigan sing this super version for the freshmen and it gives me chills i really like it I really love that song. It's like the acapella. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And That's it's, Jeff's favorite version. The too, harmonies right? are great. It's really good. So yeah, I do like the Michigan song. The one other funny thing to me about this project was since I started collecting fight song lyrics a year ago, things have changed. And in fact, one school changed its lyrics in between the time that I got the lyrics off of its like the official website until we published this year. Washington changed its lyrics to take out gender-specific references. So instead of like fighting for the boys, it's fighting for the ones or, or something like that. So that's that's how long this project was going, that the data actually changed in the meantime, yeah. which I love. <laughs> yeah, it's been going on since uh, that average uh, songwriting date of 1927. <laughs> yeah, actually. exactly. Exactly. That's when I started it. <laughs> All right, that will do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.